Okay, so what are we doing this week? Cold open. Cold open. What'd you yeah. do this week? Tell me something. How's writing going? <laughs> writing? <laughs> I, I haven't been writing. <laughs> I won't. I won't. I won't even lie. Like that's like a sad question on my end. Like I, I haven't. I haven't gotten a chance to write much at all. Like just with the everything being what it was, I keep thinking I'm going to have time to write during work, but then it's just not happening for me. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm very much in a rut. Like I, I, I haven't written in a few months. Actually, it makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. What's your, uh, what's your theory on it? What's your uh, diagnosis, Doc? Oh, uh, that I work forty five to fifty hours a week and it makes me sleepy. And uh, he's it's a just... sleepy man. You gotta <laughs> let the man sleep. And it's like, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna write after work? Jesus, no! I have to make dinner. Um, like, yeah. well, nobody sleepy you... ever wrote anything good. <laughs> Name one good thing written by a sleepy person. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Little Prince, or that that might be about sleep rather than. Oh, Le Petit Prince. <laughs> that might be more about that. I bet the parent. Was, I bet the like origin story on so many of those like parent wrote it for their kid to get them to fall asleep stories. Like mm. I bet the parent was sleepy as heck. You're right. Yeah. You should yeah. try writing a bedtime story. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's <laughs> that, I really should. That might get me out of the rut. <laughs> like that, that might change <laughs> things. Like, yeah. I I think the other problem I'm looking at with it is that um I I ha- I feel very committed to like finishing a draft that I have. Like there, there's a bunch of stuff that I've now left hanging. And what I should do is just let that go and just write something else and then worry about editing something like in order to get back into things. Because mm-hmm. like thinking about the unfinished stuff is just kind of nerve wracking. Like it, it's it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a while to warm up into a topic. Mm. Like, um, and so to just beat yourself over and over a draft of uh, something for forever is just doesn't help anybody. I wrote. I don't know if you heard about this in the fiction workshop with Papatia with Doctor B. B- with Dr. Papatia. Um, so I got permission before the semester started to write like a novel idea through this mm-hmm. fiction workshop. And the trade-off was like, you need to write 20 to 25 pages for mm-hmm. every submission while other people are submitting completed short stories. Okay. Um, okay. And I was just determined. I had this idea that I thought I wanted it to be a novel. And mm-hmm. then that's like, you know, a lot of writing to do during a semester when you're, work- when you're you know, teaching and taking classes and all that. Yeah. Um, and I just should have realized halfway through the first 25 page submission that this is not a good idea for a novel, mm. <laughs> but I just became more and more stubborn and committed throughout the course of the semester. Yeah. Um, and got nothing but unanimously, Emily, what are you going for here? Feedback. Um, <laughs> where is this leading to? <laughs> is this oh. leading to? Um, you know, and it was useful feedback that I just was not willing to listen to because I was so determined mm-hmm. to, to write uh, yeah. 60 to 75 pages in a semester of a novel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wasted all of that. It is a garbage, garbage oh. first opening to a novella. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I wish the skill of learning to learning when an idea is like, and that was a good exercise. I will call this exercise complete now. <laughs> we'll I wish go. I could recognize that. 
<laughs> I mean, it's tough though. It's tough because you get committed to it. Like the thing is, it's just like because at the end of the day, there's like there's just ego caught up in it, and it is like it's your idea. It takes a lot to say my idea was bad. It turns out. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really, really wish I had developed that skill earlier because my idea was bad. <laughs> hey. No shame in that, though. No shame in no that shame at in all. No shame in that, though. Or also, like, my my idea is just, like, not a novel. Like, this is a great yeah. poem. This is a great flash fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not... This doesn't have enough meat on this bone to last for as many pages as I would need it to last for. This doesn't have to be the 50,000 words. Like, yeah, the, this is yeah. 5,000 and be okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel that. I feel that 100%. But what about you? Have you been writing lately? Oh, man. So yesterday, actually, I finally was like, let me devote. It was a quiet weekend morning. We'd finished moving finally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote, I revised a few sen- few paragraphs to death. Like, I, I started, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're a great opening few paragraphs. But mm-hmm. yeah, that short story is, um, it has a really strong paragraph. And it's like, it's like you know that meme of a horse, like somebody who drew a horse and then the head of the horse is like beautiful pencil drawing, like very realistic. And by yeah. the end, it's like deformed, like children's children's yeah. drawing nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the short story. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But at least you have a gorgeous horse head there. Like, Love my horse head. Uh, it's got I, a really I would, good voice. Yeah, I, I'd give anything for a gorgeous horse head. Like, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Call me Godfather. I want that horse head. Um. <laughs> Start with a bedtime story, Ben. You're a sleepy yeah. man. You gotta yeah. get on the subject. <laughs> Write what you know, as they <laughs> say. <laughs> what, what if after doing the MFA, like that was the giant takeaway? It turns out, like of the MFA itself, <laughs> like Write we got what you know, <laughs> whole three-year degree just to find out I'm a sleepy man, and I better be writing my bedtime stories. Exactly, that, that's what it says in the fancy cursive writing on the degree. <laughs> oh man, but yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're putting something together. What's your story about, if you want to talk about it? Oh, oh, I might, um, a very brief, it's, um, yeah, I want it to be about, uh, I worked this, like, shitty movie theater job back in the day. Sick, um, yeah. And so I just thought that was a fun setting, and I decided, I, I was, like, pretty uptight people pleaser at the time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, what if someone who's the opposite of that worked this job instead? Um, <laughs> so just like a, a a flippant stoner works a movie theater job. Oh. That's, that's yeah. the premise so far. So like it was when I worked at the movie theater then. Because, <laughs> 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 yeah, that, it, it's, it's a really fun job when you're a flippant stoner, too. <laughs> like, yeah. That, it sounds... It looked much more fun for the flippant stoner types. Yeah. I dope. I, I want to read it. If you want me to look over it, send it to me. I, I'd love to check it out. Oh, thanks. But, yeah. I'm going to maybe get the tail. going to at least get the tail in words, even if it's yeah. the kid's pencil yeah. <laughs> slam down outline. We're going to have to get through the whole middle thing. and end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
You're in the driver's seat, boss. You got to do the transitions right. today. Okay, cool. Oh, okay, cool. Well, well then we're transitioning. Then if we're going to be talking about this. Um, yeah. So welcome to the Good Writing Podcast, uh, which uh, are we doing the Good Writing or just Good Writing Podcast? I am. I think it's funniest if we aren't consistent. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, well, welcome to to Mr. and Mrs. Writing Podcast. Um, <laughs> um, the and today we are talking about uh, Brian Evanson's uh, phenomenal short story, uh, Altman's Tongue, uh, from the uh, the title story from his collection, Altman's Tongue, which was his very first collection that that he put out in the. I believe early 90s, I think, is the original um, printing of this. Yeah, 1994 um, is when this came out. And um, just uh, before we go into the story itself, which is very brief, uh, less than a page in total, um, maybe close to 300 words, um, I, I just want to give a little bit of background on Brian Evanson. I, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all or if it, this is your first encounter with him. Yeah. Googled him after you sent me the short story... Wait, dear listener, watch me re-Google him live. Yeah. yeah, and I looked at the photos of him, and I was like, Ben just loves dudes with that hair. <laughs> uh, the, the, his, you know, a scraggly, unkempt person. <laughs> I'm into it. No, it's yeah. a look. Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But you like... love, you love a little, you love a little floppy hair. Yeah, I do. I, I, as a person with a little floppy hair, um, I, I also do love a little floppy <laughs> hair on someone else. Um, so I looked at this. I looked at the photo of this guy, and I was like, Ben would like this guy. I bet they'd hang out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah God, God willing, Brian Evanson, if you hear this and want to hang out with me. Um, <laughs> so how do you, you? This is my first Brian Evanson. How do you find Brian Evanson? Um, I found Brian Evanson through a recommendation by from another author that I really love, Blake Butler. Cool. Um, he he speaks very highly of Brian Evanson, and it was when his um, 2014 collection came out, uh, Brian Evanson's 2014 collection, I read him, uh, Blake Butler, talking about it and, and was just very intrigued right away as to what it was going to be. But, um, yeah. He, um, so Evanson himself is, is, you know, he's a at this point ex-Mormon. Um, when he wrote this first collection, he was still part of the Mormon church. He was teaching writing at Brigham Young University at the time. And this book got him into a lot of trouble with the university, um, hmm. given that he is a writer of... He is... I think that he is more better described as a writer of literature, um, and it's literature that crosses into genre fiction. Um, but his stuff it, uh, definitely plays in the realms of horror fiction specifically, as well as more recently he's been done stuff that could be better described as science fiction as well. But written a lot of a lot of stuff that uh, is considered to be literary horror fiction for the most part. Okay, um, cool. And this um, this first collection that this comes from probably falls more literary it, it, it's like the influence of someone like uh, beckett can be seen a little more obviously on the first collection i, I think it's a little more high-minded and i think he gets more interested in exploring the genre space more as his career goes on um but yeah the this first collection just absolutely phenomenal and, and the, just a very very strange writer um you know often dealing uh, i think in terms of you know not putting a lot on the page like what he does put on the page is very evocative and, and is kind of what's meant to remind you of what you don't know about everything that's going on mm -hmm. like it's very 
the knowledge you don't have in a Brian Evanson story is very important to your reading of the story, and I think that's something that he wants to bring out in people. Um, is that kind of that fear, uh, like that the anxiety produced by that, um, by, by that state? Um, but mm. yeah, it, and just, and he deals a lot, you know, just with being very immediate and brutal in the actions of his characters. Characters are often very kind of um, very distant from what they do. Um, they're, they're often, you know, either behind a veil of kind of emotionlessness, or sometimes they're behind a veil of like not having like the traditional emotional reaction to a scenario that you would get um which he can be used for both horrific and comedic effect in his stories um yeah but yeah uh overall just a very very strange writer just kind of focused on 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 that distance between the um subject and the object um and, and kind of exploring what that distance means um in that um Trying to explain that a little bit better. Uh, trying to describe to the re, try, trying to get the reader to inhabit that space in which they are suddenly aware of the distance between the uh, the subject and the object, the observed and the observer, like and how the the relationship between those two things can be very easily muddled, even though our our skills of perception would try to convince us that it can't be. So uh, again, when you say the distance between subject and object. Do you mm-hmm. mean distance between reader and like voice and how much information the reader has about it, or what? Do, um, I yeah, go ahead. Do, or do you mean like distance between like uh, the narrator in this Altman's tongue story and how much? Like, are you talking about like reliable narrators or what? Tell, I don't know what you mean. Um, I I mean kind of almost like you know directly philosophically. Mm. in the uh, perceptual distance. Um, I, I think that we, we can tie that in. I, I think that you're right to talk about like an unreliable narrator and a um, distance between like reader and voice. Um, I, I think those all kind of tie into this, but I, I mean this in a very like basic essential way uh, of attempt uh, of what he just tries to like the thematic interrogation that I think he's most interested in or, or one that he is very interested in. It is the way in which a subject is in any human subject um, attempts to relate to an observed object or or perceived other um, mm. and, and the and the way that they um, uh, perceptual distance between that subject and object uh, is kind of immediately um, obfuscating like the that there is, that through that, through the lens of um, there being a differentiation between subject and off- object, just because those are two different things, like because of that, there is always going to be a fog or a veil between them, and, and the exploration of what that fog or veil can be. Mm-hmm. And in his writing, that comes through, like you said, in the form of unreliable narrators, or in the form of kind of unexplained occurrences, or aspects of the world that are never fully understood by the characters that inhabit the world. Um, yeah, the, so like yeah. the that like when you say philosophically, this might be part of like humans are only able to understand so much about the world, mm-hmm. right? And we're often mm-hmm. wrong mm-hmm. about it. So like mm-hmm. in Altman's tongue, the narrator like has all these opinions about people like Altman and people like Horst, um, yeah. and maybe doesn't realize like that's probably not a very full understanding of reality. 
Yeah. Um, to okay. give a brief overview, just to go into the story itself, because I think that's a good entrance, is, is the people like Altman and people like Horst. Look um, at him with that transition. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a really good spot to come into discussion with, because uh, in the story of Altman's tongue, uh, the brief... The very basic overview of this story is that a nameless narrator uh, kills a man named Altman. He's there with another man named Horst. Uh, the man named Horst is kind of talking to him, and he encourages Altman to, I'll just, I'll just read what Horst says about Altman after Altman has been killed. Horst says, You must eat his tongue. If you eat his tongue, it will make you wise. Horst was whispering, If you eat his tongue, it will make you speak the language of birds. And that's the last thing that Horst says before the narrator kills him also. He just shoots him. Very unceremoniously, very just suddenly, they're both dead. Both Altman and Horst are dead, and the narrator is sitting there still alive. And then he goes into this moment where he's considering there are people in the world like Altman, and there are people in the world like Horst. The people in the world like Altman are people that when you kill them, you don't worry about it. It's fine. People like Altman, they only exist to be killed. And then people like Horst, well, maybe you want to kill them, but you kind of wonder about it afterwards. You kind of are, you're, you know, you're unsure of if you should have done it or not, but you still do it, essentially. And, the, and this differentiation then goes into this kind of um, repeti uh, repetition and doubling about Altman and Horst and people like Altman and Horst and what that means to the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I think what is very interesting about that is that he's saying oh there's people like altman there's people like horst both altman and horst are dead people those are the same kind of person at the end of the day <laughs> there are two people that have been killed for no reason that the reader understands or that the narrator narrator even seems to understand yeah it's this yeah yeah go ahead if you want to yeah just to like that. orient yeah. our listeners a little bit more yeah. like yeah Ben mentioned earlier that this writer Brian Evanson is all about like what you reminding you how much you don't have, know about the situation, and we're kind of dropped into the scene. And I like thought, you know, this could be on a medieval battlefield. This could be just like some fucking freaks outside of a Domino's. Like there is mm -hmm. no. Um, Sorry, I'm swearing so much, but there's there's no like it could be in an ending setting. Like I assumed kind of at first that that the narrator was in some kind of noble battle and had good reason to kill the original guy who he killed, but then after he mm -hmm. so arbitrarily killed the second guy, <laughs> you know, it makes you realize uh, <laughs> yeah. makes you realize you don't know as much as you thought you might have. Yeah, the that there isn't even anything to know because you you're dropped. It's not the beginning of the story is after I had killed Altman. That's the first few words that you get in the story is after I had killed Altman, I stood near Altman's course watching the steam of mud rising around it, obscuring what had once been Altman. I just had to read the entire sentence because I just like that last bit a lot. But mm -hmm. you, you we're not even starting in media res. We're starting post action. The action mm -hmm. has already occurred. It's over when when the story begins. Like we're already past the point where we could have any kind of concept contextual grounding. We were immediately given into a post-action, a character that has already resolved whatever they were trying to resolve and is already um, made up their mind about how the world works and, and has all, 
if there was any lesson to be learned, they learned it before they got to this point, it seems like. Hmm. Because we're only getting this narrator who's confirming what they believe about the world. They're not... Something that you've always told me about short stories, Emily, is that there, or, or that stories in general, is that the the main uh, what we as readers look for is for the character to change. We look for that the moment where they learn something, where they come in with with one expectation, and that's either confirmed and they gain something from that, or it's subverted and they change as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Like, but in this story, we don't have that. We have a static, we have this static main character who is already finished by the time that we by the time that we join him in the scenario, um, which I mm-hmm. think adds to that layer of kind of obscuring and pushing us away from an understanding. Um, yeah, and I feel like I've been talking a lot about this, so I, I'm curious as someone that read the story also, like, what, what, do you, what did you think about this? Like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, okay, so to preface all of our friends, new friends, um, I am like... Mm-hmm. A pretty conventional short story reader like I want a hero to go on a journey and I want to see if I want to have a big opportunity for change and that's what's satisfying for me generally um I found okay so I had two like big big notes as when I first read this first that that first sentence that you read after I had killed Altman I stood near Altman's corpse watching the steam of the mud rising around it obscuring what had once been Altman that felt really fun. Like, I felt like I had been thrown mm-hmm. into, um, like, Gideon the Ninth right now. Like, I am truly in the middle mm-hmm. of a sci-fi or fantasy, like, battle scene. Um, and that's always mm-hmm. thrilling and, like, compelling, and I want to keep going. And I have, like, a, a strong visual image of mm-hmm. that sentence. I do think it's interesting that, like, the active verb is, I stood near. Mm-hmm. Everything else mm-hmm. is kind of, like, dependent clauses. Um, yeah. And the... Yeah, I found that interesting. Um, that definitely, like, that un- less conventional way of doing it, but especially that, like, final clause that you 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 said that you couldn't resist reading out loud, obscuring what had once been Altman, like, mm-hmm. really does elevate this. Like, I feel like I'm in a fantasy-like, genre-like moment, but the mm-hmm. language is crafted in a way that tells me, like, this isn't going to be a conventional, like, satisfying here-goes-on-a-journey story. Um, so... Uh, yeah, okay, so I felt really oriented in a genre moment from the beginning, but also suspicious that this wasn't, like, just conventional plot. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it's not a plot-heavy sentence grammar construction there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then by the end, I was like, this is this man is a poet in a weird fantasy setting. Like, that's what's happening yeah. here. Um, so this, <laughs> I want to read, if it's okay, I want to read two sentences towards the end out loud. Um, So this is after he is, like, thinking about the types of Horst and Altman. Like, Mm -hmm. all people are either Horst or Altman after that whole monologue. He says, I am the sole exception. Mm -hmm. Which I think you're going to have an interesting, like, philosophical read of this character due to that. But I really Mm -hmm. liked, I am the sole exception. I repeated the phrase sole exception, alternating it with unique exception, trying to decide which was the, the better, unable to decide. This man's just a nihilistic poet. Like, he's just making fun sounds in his head. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so that's the, that's my, those are my takeaways. Yeah. I, I really like that I also, that the I am the sole exception is, of course, another standout moment in this piece. Because it comes after this moment where, like you said, the, it comes after this monologue, essentially, where he's trying to differentiate Horst and Altman 
the two men that he's killed. Altman as the, you know, as the person that deserved to die. Horst as the person that maybe deserved to die, but ultimately both are dead. And the, what I... And my read on that, of course, them being both dead, meaning that there is no difference between these two men. They were both killed. They they are both two, you know, they they are ontologically equivalent with one another (laughs) as a result of the actions of the story. Uh, And the narrator is attempting to justify, I think what is most important to the narrator in that moment is his ability to differentiate himself from Altman and Horst. There are two types of people in the world. It's not Altman and Horst. It's me and everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's that I am the sole exception that I think kind of drives that home. And then what I think becomes very interesting about this is I repeated the phrase sole exception, alternating it with unique exception. He's doing the same thing with language that he just did with these two men. He's attempting to differentiate these two phrases, sole exception and unique exception, Mm. but in reality, they're the exact same thing. Just as we see before with Altman and Horst being attempted to differentiate these as two different types of men, but when at the end of the day, they are the same thing, especially to this narrator. There is is the living, there is the dead, there is myself, there is the other, and then between that, there is only mist. Hmm. Like, you know, the trying to decide which was better unable to decide it, it, it that the way that that kind of you know bounces back to the original concept that that he's exploring with the killing of altman and horst and then i have to read the final lines of this just because this is my favorite part in the whole thing is how this goes how this ends we have this philosophical diatribe then it goes to i flew blackly about smelling my foul feathers and flesh i sputtered spattered a path through the branches of trees, sprung fluttering into blank sky. We're suddenly... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what the heck? Did he become a bird? Probably. That's what it <laughs> seems like. like. yeah. What the heck? It, 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 he becomes a bird, or he was always a bird. Um, it, and, you know, because we have that kind of callback to this thing that Horst is saying in the beginning. If you eat his tongue, it will make you speak the language of birds. So we kind of have this kind of, like idea of the bird planted there but the thing that i love most about that final bit as a bit of writing is that the entire rest of the um story completely conceptual all taking place on this kind of like you know mental philosophical plane in which we're kind of dealing with with an ontological differentiation that the narrator is failing to find but then those last two sentences were real again we're back in the physical like we're, we're suddenly seeing a world we're seeing a a, huh. a a being in a way that we were like denied for the rest of the story we have no other physical description except for as you were stating at the very beginning as the after i had killed altman i stood near altman's corpse that's the only other time we're in a place that is the very beginning and the very end and yeah i think that that ending is just such a beautiful way of kind of letting go uh, of the philosophical like diatribe that this like character is attempting to address that the author is attempting to address this ability to differentiate between self and other that never quite satisfies that you know he's unable to decide if his sole exception and unique exception is better and instead we're suddenly just left to just an animalistic like representation at the ending like you know there what what can be said to be real about ourself and the other we don't really know what can be said to be real about the stink of feathers and flesh? We know that immediately. Hmm. And that, like, just the physical bearing some sort of tangible reality that we, the reader, can hold on to and that the narrator can hold on to. 
but that is completely denied through the like kind of philosophical wandering of the rest of the piece. I, I just really love where that goes. Yeah. yeah, this is super... That, you just made me realize the degree to which, like, because it opens with very, like, tangible images, steam of mud rising around a corpse, and mm-hmm. closes with tangible images, I did not realize the degree to which, like, there is remarkably literal, little visual throughout yeah. this whole story, short story, flash fiction mm-hmm. or whatever we call it. Yeah. Um, like skimming through it, we open with the mud rising. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like Horst doing stuff, but we never have a description of him. Uh, mm-hmm. We point a rifle, mm-hmm. narrator points a rifle at, at Horst. Mm-hmm. But like, we don't have a description of like, you know, is that american revolution kind of bayonet ass rifle or is that you know like a modern m16 is it yeah yeah there's just i you started this by telling me this writer leads a lot off the page but it still feels really tangible and i did not totally process how much wasn't on this page (laughs) yeah the the, there's so little uh information you're you're given a confused character that like actively states that he doesn't have an answer to any of the questions he's posing and then the story goes back into the real world and then it ends like (laughs) and that's and i i just like to me that sort of thing is very satisfying when fiction is able to capture that kind of confusion that we experience in life like you know i i equate it to when you just when, when you see someone walking down the street like carrying some object that's way too large to be carried and you have no idea why they're carrying it where they're carrying it but you know that there's a reason for it but you're driving so then it's gone and you're gone and and you'll never know Mm -hmm. and and i think that stories like this capture that feeling so well uh, Mm -hmm. of just the uh, the eternal mystery around us which is at times both terrifying but also i think very very satisfying through its existence like you know to to you know, wax poetic on my own part, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is a little bit of a detour, but I took piano lessons as a kid, but mm-hmm. I was, like, not totally consistent about rehearsing at home. Um, yeah. And so by the time I would have, like, rehearsals for, like, my piano teacher and all of his other kids, um, mm-hmm. I'd be in a bit of a panic. And he would tell mm-hmm. me, um, he told me with like musical performances and i think this is true with flash fiction too people Mm -hmm. remember uh the confidence the feeling that they had when you began playing and when you ended Mm -hmm. playing and if you have to make a mistake make it in the middle like because they simply won't remember (laughs) um yeah and i think that's kind of relevant advice too for if you want to like have like this piece begins really tangible with a tangible image and ends with a tangible image and a lot it gets away with a lot of like philosophizing and less grounded events in the middle Mm -hmm. and i Mm -hmm. i think it's because it starts and opens with with strong images yeah yeah i completely agree i I completely agree with that 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 if we didn't have those it'd be nothing like if we didn't have that frame giving us something to it, it just a sliver of something to hold on to that then we wouldn't care 
Like we wouldn't be we wouldn't be interested in the diatribe on Altman and Horst if it just began with I had killed Altman, then I killed Horst, and then what's the difference between Altman and Horst? And then it's like, and then if it ends on the sentence before where it just uh, says, you know, all people are either Horst or Altman, I am the sole exception, even ending with that, which is a good line, like it just wouldn't, it would fall flat completely if we didn't have the the reality, however slim it is. Yeah. So, like, to use your metaphor of, like, you're driving past something weird happening, somebody carrying something that makes you go, like, wait a minute, but you've already driven Mm -hmm. away. Um, Mm -hmm. What, I guess what I'm wondering, for readers who haven't podced our podcast and actually read this flash fiction, which we will link, by the way, in the show notes for anyone who hasn't. Yes. Yeah, please pause and feel free to pause and always, always pause us and go, go read the section. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But for people who haven't read it before, like... I'm wondering what made this what caught your eye about this? Like, what do, what are the ingredients required? Um, what does the person walking down the street have to be carrying? What kind of object has, do they have to be carrying to for to catch your eye and make you actually think about it later, rather than to catch your eye and be like, that was weird, and then immediately forget about it. Well, I mean, I think that the thing that has to catch your eye it just has to be enough out of place. You know, if it's, if I, if, given the context, if I'm driving on the highway and someone's walking down the side of the highway carrying a wedding cake, that's very noticeable. <laughs> like, that's, in, that, that's, ve- uh, that's very, like, you know, you're going to remember that um, be, because it, it, it defies the context of what you're seeing, even in the context of someone walking down the side of the highway. Or, or if you were to see someone even walking down the side of the street carrying, say, like, a street sign under their arm. Like that, that would almost be incongruous enough, but even that almost tells too much of a story. Like it's too easy to put it together. Um, so, but just things like that, where, where it just, it shocks you uh, enough to like have it stick like something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, like I think the wedding cake is the best thing I can come up with right now. Like, you know, so it's something that feels out of place to what you're seeing. Yeah. So what is it about the story that made you like? go home and continue to think about it rather than just be like, and I'm done with that story. Flip to the page to the next one. Honestly, the thing that continuously brought me back to it are the final two sentences. It's, I flew blackly about smelling, smelling my foul feathers and flesh. I sputtered, spattered a path through the branches of trees, sprung fluttering into blank sky. Like that, that image is so strong to me and just so immediately kind of, just personally hooks into my taste also into like the kind of thing that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it just the, the, the use of, um, I, I flew blackly about the using blackly as the, ad, as like the adverb there. I really love things like that where, where, mm-hmm. you know, using a noun as a verb or using an ad, uh, using an adjective as an adverb, like that kind of like mismatched replacement, um, I, I just think that's so evocative be, because it kind of speaks to a sort of synesthesia uh, almost mm. um, where, where like suddenly the senses are crossing over into each other. We, we, we can understand it, but not fully visualize it. Like I, I know in my heart what it is to fly blackly about, but I couldn't draw a picture of it. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, those two final sentences just st- like, you know, absolute goosebumps the first time I read them after this, you know, very like this very strange diatribe about like this attempt to differentiate these two people and this attempt to differentiate the self from the other and kind of failing to do so in a satisfactory way. 
which is also a kind of thing that I like. But it's, you know, the addressing a kind of core issue of humanity and what it means to be a person and attempting to kind of understand that and then following up with just a very deeply imagistic poetic line like that like it, it just it just stirred me like when i first read it i was like wow that's that's something else uh, you don't you don't see that all the time it was definitely yeah. the feeling i got like yeah so the combination of like thought-provoking ben's a former philosophy major and <laughs> um just really good language using a weird word as an ad- adverb um and also we haven't talked about the alliteration, but oh my god, the alliteration in those last couple yeah. sentences. Yeah. Um, foul feathers in flesh, sputtered, spattered, mm-hmm. sprung. Um, yeah, so the combination of philosophical treatise and uh, just something badass happening. Yeah. Yeah, basically, if you put the, those two things together, that's Ben Bait. That's Ben Bait real hard. Ben like, Bait? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, some real that's Ben Bait up in here. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so what um what craft lessons, uh, which craft left it, lesson do you think a reader who is picking this up for the first time should should think on and maybe use in their I, practice? I, I think that the thing that you should take away the most is the way that he uses repetition it mm-hmm. is the way that this repeats things and like a, a re- repetition with slight variation it is probably his tool that's used like it's the most prominent tool i, I think in the entire story like w- with the repetition of altman and horst and attempting to differentiate them and just slowly kind of picking away and kind of circling around like what it means to address these two ideas again and again and building it little by little or taking something away little by little. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that is probably the most powerful tool that he that could be stolen from this is the way that just to return to something again and again and see it in a new way every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is that is the thing that I think that I have stolen from this story multiple times or attempted to steal. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that I think people could look to this as a, just kind of a masterclass in the way that he does that. Because even going from like, you know, we get it with the Altman and horse, that's the longest section of repetition. Mm -hmm. But then it, as I was saying earlier, we then see that morph in that he continues to repeat the same philosophical, um, problem with the, um, in the difference between Altman and Horst when he goes into the difference between sole exception and unique exception. And then we also see that go further when he goes into smelling my foul feathers and flesh. The feathers and flesh are once again another moment of that same repetition of attempting to differentiate these two things. And then we see it finally in that last sentence, I stuttered, spattered, sprung. Like like just kind of attempt saying the same thing in a different way that just changes it a little bit every time, mm-hmm. but still maintains the core of what it originally was. Um, that That is, I, I think, what he does most obviously and most um, powerfully in, in the entire story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I've been interested in more in the past couple of years is like point of view characters who are full of shit or who mm-hmm. don't, who think they know everything and they don't. They have like really mm-hmm. limited views. Um, mm. and I like how he uses repetition here to show how the narrator's logic totally falls apart. Um, mm-hmm. so like there are two types of people. These are the two types. All people are one of these two types. I am the exception. Mm-hmm. 
So you're not mm-hmm. all people. So like obviously, mm-hmm. but then he kind of hides it because he goes into his next repetition, soul exception and unique exception, and he just like mm-hmm. continues his pattern differently. But like, yeah, he is full of shit. Like that that actually yeah. doesn't make sense. His 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 logic doesn't. It yeah. falls apart under scrutiny. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I like how he uses the tool that he used to build the idea, also to disintegrate it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How it kind of fall, it, it, it turns in on itself because it because he he can't find the answer, and he and like you said in that sentence shows that the that he's asking a question that does not have an answer. Like like it's not possible to get there from the angle he's attempting to interrogate it from. Yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah, wicked. Weird choice, yeah, Ben. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love this fucking thing. Hey, wait, can I ask one other thing? Yeah. Um, I guess this isn't for my benefit so much as, like, I'm just going to prompt you and you speak on it at large, but um, our MFA program, like, I, I think all MFA programs, has mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot to say about literary work versus genre work. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I noticed in your intro, you you were like saying he's a literary writer who uses genre elements, um, mm-hmm. which is you know that's in now. I think he was mm-hmm. he wrote this well mm-hmm. before that was in though. <laughs> I don't know. Can yeah. you just speak more on uh, literary versus genre and what takeaways there are from this short story on that on that like debate or topic? Yeah, I I think it just kind of goes to show that there's not a real difference between those two things like at least like the i I think would people when like our mfa professors and and when people talk about that differentiation i I think they're trying to showcase a difference between uh artwork that is created to be sold and consumed versus artwork that is attempting to make active commentary about the world is i think the distinction that was originally originally houses itself in the genre v um uh uh literary distinction which we like and i think a large part of that also comes from a generational difference between our um uh, our um teachers and ourselves because i think a lot of our teachers when they think of genre fiction they're thinking of like spy novels and like weird police procedurals which like like mystery still gets written mystery is still a huge genre like i'm not trying to say it's not but like that isn't even like what i consider when i think about genre fiction i'm literally just going fantasy sci-fi horror i I, (laughs) there's better be wizards or robots or some like something like awesome better be happening in in order for that to occur yeah Yeah. subject matter Mm -hmm. yeah And, and and I think, yeah, it goes back to the distinction between, like, it is the real distinction is, like, is this a piece of artwork that is meant to just kind of be, you know, offhandedly consumed and, and not thought of again after it is finished? Or is it meant to be integrated into ourselves and we're supposed to reflect and we can return to it again and again to attempt to learn the lessons it wants to teach or to take new lessons that we forge ourselves from it? Mm. And, and, like, the the distinction, I think, is, you know arbitrary sometimes and it can become classist and racist often and sexist because it can argue against the work of marginalized writers without having to actually realize that that work is critically engaged on the same level as anything that could be deemed you know quote-unquote literary mm-hmm. um yeah that that that's kind of a ramble i don't think i made a full point there but ultimately <laughs> i think the distinction is somewhat arbitrary and often utilized to poor ends 
Um, just like if you have something to, it's just the difference between like, are you writing something to make it be fun or are you writing something because you want it to say something more than just have a good time? Not that there's anything wrong with the stuff that says it's, it's just there to be fun. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think like literary, I'm using air Mm. quotes. Mm -hmm. I'm narrating Mm -hmm. my air quotes. I think literary writing recently has been a lot of like intergenerational family vignettes and middle-aged divorces and yeah i think yeah, it would it be like like you can't read you cannot tell me you can't read the fates and the furies by lauren groff and tell me that you don't think that fa- that literary i'm using air quotes writing also doesn't mm-hmm. have subject matter biases like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's subject matter that like uh, um yeah, there's, there's subject matter that gets elevated to literary kind of automatically, and I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that similarly, like, I, I think some people are dismissive of steaming mud, steam steam of the mud rising around a corpse um, and aren't willing to, like, believe that there's a good philosophy, philosophical discussion there, too, in yeah, addition to the mud like, steaming and the foul feathers. I'm sorry that it wasn't about a boring man. Um, like, <laughs> you mean it's not this. about being a professor and getting tenure? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, are they going to have sex with someone younger than them and feel weird about it? I wonder. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, books suck. <laughs> Some in different yeah. ways. All. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I completely agree Like that, that it is just a, a kind of, there are, you know, tropes and conventions that, that people fall into in, you know, any form of writing because we've been writing for a very long time and we tend to rearrange and arrange the same things that we've seen and like experienced because we're all trying to speak to the human experience, like that, that, that will invariably lead to, you know, repetitions uh, of various ideas in certain modes uh, like you were saying you know like you said there's a lot about divorce out there and in part that's because a lot of people go through divorces and, yeah it sounds you know, so interesting they, it's a perfectly good subject yeah. matter but we don't like <laughs> cast off every divorce story as like yeah oh it's just literary yes yeah. <laughs> you know it's true oh you it's and true. adult are reading that I don't know. Isn't it kind of childish? It's only literary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. If I have to read, like, a- another description of, like, red tail lights in one form or another, like, <laughs> and, like, the, the deep-seated, like, you know, the, the wistfulness described as a result of that, or, or if I have to he- read about the smell of a grandparent's house, again, <sighs> God, it, it just... Oh, it's coming. You, it, got it's, a, you got a storm brewing, my man. Yeah, it's in every third book, and it's always the same thing. Like that, just that pervasive nostalgia is very important to liter- literary genre. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like you see a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, again, I got nothing against. I'm just saying it yeah. doesn't. We can find things to dismiss about literary writing as much as we can about yeah. any genre writing. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, like exactly that and it's just strange because it feels like a somewhat arbitrary choice that that we would dismiss one and not the other like Mm -hmm. one because it's less set situated in the realm of the real i guess even though most literary fiction is equally unrealistic 
no matter what happens. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think a lot. Most compelling stories are unrealistic. Like, yeah. most of the time, before the big climax would have happened, they would have just called their mom, vented, calmed down, and done something more rational. You know? Like, yeah. Every story is meant to have a little bit of unrealism in it in order to, yeah. or it's likely to have a lot of unrealism in it in order to make it a compelling story. To be a story. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. No, you're completely correct. Yeah. <laughs> um cool ben this was a this was exactly the kind of thing i thought you would choose <laughs> yeah yeah nice. no, and I, I i wanted to come in with a with a you know clean obvious answer <laughs> like, so the, the, ben bait yeah also the, so my question is would you read more brian evanson yeah i'd pick up more brian evanson i mean oh. it is hard to say no to flash fiction like yeah. um this link is probably going to be the link that we share in the show notes too and it's just like yeah oh real sketchy page ben by the way yeah. just like yeah this does not look legal yeah um yeah no i i'm pretty sure that it was not uh meant to be posted there i don't think I he gave his permission for that one but yeah Oops, uh, well if you if you google altman's tongue uh, you'll yeah. probably stumble upon this and yeah it's just so easy to pick this up i was i was over the weekend trying to read like various lit mags and there was just like mm-hmm. paywalls and ads that kept loading wrong and these like pop-up gifs and it was meant to be cute but it was like actually extremely distracting from something very simple that i was trying to do so i kind of loved the sketchy ass white web page with <laughs> times new roman text and no formatting <laughs> and one short story and a single blue hyperlink yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you send me any hyperlink like this you want ben i don't have yeah. to <laughs> click out of a pop-up sounds good yeah. <laughs> Oh man, beautiful. Um, okay, wait. Uh, we should we should outro. Yeah. Um, yes. Hey. Uh, oh, you know, before our outro, I was thinking about this for like our standing exit. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, cold, cold outro, I guess. Uh, what yes. do you have to do other than writing? Anything? Any like cool video game or something you might write? Oh. Oh, I like this. Um, yeah. Um, I recommend. Uh, I recommend Tetris. Um, if you... It, Tetris? It, it, What's that? Uh, <laughs> I've never heard of Tetris. It, it, specifically, I recommend the game Tetris Effect. Um, mm. But really, any Tetris, if you haven't played... Te- if you're listening to this and you haven't played Tetris recently, I suggest going and sitting down and playing some Tetris because it might be, like, a perfect game in many ways like as far as like what it's having you do and and how easy that is to understand and how difficult it is to execute on Mm -hmm. like that it it might actually be a kind of perfect accomplishment but i recommend tetris effect because if you think that it would just be boring to play a game where shapes are falling and i can understand that like you know tetris effect is like what if Tetris took acid seems to be the thesis Um, because every level um, has a different soundtrack and the sounds kind of react to like when a block falls into place, it'll kind of add layers to the soundtrack. And when you turn stuff around, it changes how, uh, and they all have different looks and it's all like vaguely psychedelic. Like it basically looks like if you ever have been to like an EDM music festival, the stuff that they project onto the backgrounds at an EDM festival, it's that, but you're playing Tetris on it. Um, Yeah. So I, I highly recommend that. Yeah. Sweet. 
Uh, how about you? I, I think for the show art for this episode, we should find EDM music backgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, I've got two recommendations. Two things I'm up to other than nice. writing. First of all, what I'm up to other than writing is eating udon noodles. I just love mm. udon noodles or the superior noodles. Um, okay. Is, is that delicious. like a wheat noodle or is that an egg noodle? Like, yeah, this yeah. is not gluten free. This is wheat honey. They're real thick. Okay. They're 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 warm like. Okay. This is the way to go. A yeah. stir fry anything, any vegetable. Okay. Put an udon noodle mm. on it and slop whatever mm. uh, Asian sauces you have. That's a delicious mm. meal. Highly recommend. Um, <laughs> okay. Hell yeah. I I want that now. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like this is what I'm doing after we finish recording and then. Um, <laughs> My other recommendation is to um, join a kickball team. I joined a rec, a gay mm. kickball team, a recreational gay mm. kickball team, and um, been the glory of actually catching the ball is so oh real. Like I felt like third grade me was like seeing mm. through time and having like hope inspired into her. You know, <laughs> like, joining an adult recreational kickball circle. team. That's my other recommendation. <laughs> Oh, man. So is this going better than the rec soccer team that we were briefly on together? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) It'd be hard not to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Long story short, listener, we lost every game 10 to 0. One of his his students was... I was, like, just looking for stuff to do, and I, like, looked up intramural sports through our, like, campus Mm -hmm. gym... And I, like, didn't read into the fact that they didn't separate, like, graduate school intramural sports and undergraduate intramural sports. I was just like, it says intramural, it should be casual. And so I showed up with all with a bunch of our MFA friends who, like, yeah. I'd say median age 37, like, yeah. most former smokers or current exactly. heavy smokers. Exactly, if not currently smokers. Like, yeah. one of us had ever played soccer before in our life. Um, yeah. The rest of us were just here for a good time and something to do before we went to half-off burgers on Mondays at the local yeah. bar. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and then I did not understand the degree to which, like, intramural undergrad sports are really just, like... 18 year olds who came straight from their jv team like to college and wanted an activity (laughs) like it was we were murdered like every week um like it was bad it was (laughs) mercy rule every inning (laughs) i mean out whatever (laughs) and just like all of us like red and sweating (laughs) like if we if we managed to block one shot we'd spend the next three minutes high-fiving each other like we we would stop the entire match like like oh god hell hell yeah and just also all we would do is like heckle the other team too like, hey, like we would just a fourteen, like... a fourteen. Yeah, Dan was so good at that. Hey, yeah, fourteen. God. You... <laughs> you should have sat inside out fourteen. We were trying so hard. Ben, did I tell you that like one of those undergrads who like worked at the camp worked worked at the campus gym and like therefore occasionally had to be a ref recognized mm. me. <laughs> Six months later, no. Like I was like locked out of my gym locker, and she was like, "Are you guys playing?" 
just like, hey, no, we're not that playing. nerd who always lost. <laughs> I don't want to be known for this. <laughs> you should just been like, play what? Just start gaslighting him. No, I never played soccer. You have never met you in my life. <laughs> Way to get uh, out. Uh, yeah. Yeah, shout out to all of the various dudes who were just like working out and volunteered to sub in and would score all of our goals. <laughs> like, <laughs> the only reason we were ever on the map. To, oh, wait, I have, to, I have to say. So our friend Sherry Buick scored a goal mm-hmm. and i fucking mm-hmm. the next day during office hours <laughs> i went on microsoft word templates and i found a certificate <laughs> i printed her a certificate <laughs> for scoring a goal and i made our department head sign it <laughs> i made becca mccabe sign the certificate congratulations sherry buick you scored a goal and I hung it in the in our in our like office, our communal office. Oh God! It it was the most athletic thing we'd ever seen anyone do. <laughs> was, I was thrilled. I rode that high for a week. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! All right. So outro. Oh, um. Then where can people find us online? Uh, People can, uh, if you want to, I guess if they want to send us email, if they have comments about the story that we've read or about literature in general, they can send us email at goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. That's yeah, the buddy. one that we're using. That's the yeah. one? Okay. Yeah. So if you have messages, we would love to read them. Um, we could potentially read them on air if that's something that people wanted us to do. Um, also, I guess you can find me on uh, Twitter at BenjaminKearns22, or is it just two? I can't remember because I haven't used it in a long time, but it's one of those. Um, I'll look it up for you, bud. <laughs> let's see. I, I, I'm also at a computer. I can I can do this, too. Um, um, yeah, I have I... decided to not make yes. a show social media um, because mm-hmm. I simply don't want to. It's just, there's. Yeah. I don't want to keep up. It's 22. Um, yeah, it's 20. Benjamin Kern's 22. You can follow me on Twitter there, and maybe I'll start using it again. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I've decided to not make shows to social media because who has the time? Um, you can find yeah. me on Twitter. I'm at mdons, E-M-D-O-N-S, and I also don't really use it. But you, technically speaking, you could find me there. I didn't say that any content would be there or any new content. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. But technically, mm-hmm. I am in a way there. Um, maybe yes. goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com would be the best way to get in touch, though. Yeah, so send us an email there, and uh, we'll. if you don't want us to read it on the air, say so on there, or um, we will read it on the air, probably, because that'd be pretty cool. So <laughs> help us. <laughs> yeah, uh, rate and review us five stars, please. Thanks. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>